We're in chapter, chapter 4 of the book of Genesis. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Toby's in the back. Can't wait to hand you one. Genesis should be easy to find. It's your first book of the Bible, chapter 4. We're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And this, God willing, will be the first time since we've begun Genesis that we will not get through the whole chapter. Uh, my intent is to go through the first 16 verses uh, today. And then I really do pray that you would come back next week, um, starting in verse 17, when we start to look at something that most people just read really quickly through. All of these names, because um, the idea of next week's message, what's in a name, really should be very, very, very profound how that all plays out. Okay, so here we are in the first 16 verses. Read them with me now. Now Adam knew Eva's wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And she bore again, and this time his brother Chabel. Now Chabel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Chabel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Chabel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain nor his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Nachin talked with Habel his brother, and it came to pass that when they were in the field, Achin rose up against Habel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Well, where is your brother Abel? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, Well, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now from now on you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a fugitive and a vagabond in all the earth. So Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great for me to bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. Now the Lord said to Cain, Well, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord will set a mark on him. So the Lord, I'm sorry, the Lord did set a mark on Cain, lest anyone that find him would kill him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, which, of course, I pray none of you will be in the land of Nod today on the east side of Chedin. Now, this is where we begin this. Now, I want you to recognize... As we begin this text, that God has obviously given us three chapters before this point. And in those three chapters, God has set some very important things in motion. God is clearly the giver of life. That's something we saw very clearly as we looked at chapter 2, as, as, as Adam opens his eyes. And as he opens his eyes, the first information he has to gather as a grown man is the fact that this person in front of him, this being in front of him, gave him life. That's where this started back in chapter 2 and when God starts to speak specifically. Remember in chapter 1, 32 times we see the term Elohim, plural, for God. In chapter 2, again, we see at least 12 or 11 different times the term Lord God, Yiva Elohim. And it's interesting, notice in this chapter, as we get now into chapter 4, how it focuses now on His Lordship. It's the term is the Lord now. 
In chapter 3, it's interesting, of course, we have the enemy speaking to the woman, never speaks to the man, and never uses the term Lord, always speaks in regards to God. Has God said, oh, God doesn't mean it that way. God's fearful that if you eat, you'll be like him. And the whole idea of trying to focus your thing on the fact that, yeah, he's a creator, perhaps. He may be the one who gave it, but he's really not personally involved in your life. And the more separate he can keep you from, the, the enemy can keep you from that relationship with the living God, the more you're prone to do anything and think that it's permissible. Now, it's interesting, everywhere outside of that, near, that particular consequence or that conversation between the enemy and the woman is still Lord God, Lord God, Lord God. But the moment the enemy steps in, now it's God, 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 God. Oh, he's a watchmaker, he's distant, he's whatever, he's just not the Lord. And we get into this chapter, and notice now the focus is on the Lord, because now we have individuals who have now fallen from this state of intimacy with the living God. As God said on the day that you eat of it, mut to mut, literally to die dying. It's the double infinitive. You can't get more dead than this. Strange, because he's still breathing, he's still talking, and he's having babies. That's a strange thing for a dead person, don't you think? But what's interesting in all this is God told us as they were now separated from this intimate relationship with the living God, which which is what God calls death here. Then in all of that, he tells us these specific things in regards to each of of the entities involved. Again, which is the woman, the man, and the serpent. Now for the man, he tells us that this ground will actually have to be worked now. That the only way that any fruit's going to come from this ground will be that the very product of your work. And that particular word, again, is the word avad in the Hebrew. Now would you say avad? Avad. Oh, come on now. There's one of me and there's bunches of you. Avad. Thank you. Now, that is the idea of spending your energy. It is work. And you're going to have to work, and you're going to have to work, and you're going to have to work. But the more that you work, it'll produce thorns. And you think, well, wow, that's great. So I'm working really hard, and this is what I get out of it. And he says, but you're going to have to work past those thorns. Because on the other side of those thorns, which is now work, thorns, and then more work, will be then the fruit that you're going to have to live off of. Now, we use that a lot when we talk about things in pre-marriage counseling because it's very important to recognize that that's the state of a fallen couple. And I recognize that any time that a man invests in a woman, he's going to have to put his effort into it. There will be thorns that will come up, but then he has to work through those thorns. And it's a classic story you hear in post-marriage counseling. Well, what happens is that the guy actually finally decides he's going to put forth a little effort. He hasn't for an awful long time, and an awful lot of weeds have grown. And then he puts forth a little bit of effort, and he says, well, I tried a little bit, and this is the response I got. And I'm like, wow, well, it sounds like you were on your way. And he's like, in essence, what he's saying is, I put some effort and some work into it, and I got thorns. And God says, well, look it. You're going to put work into it. It's going to produce thorns, and you've got to work through those thorns if you're going to get to really something you're going to really live off of and enjoy. Now, recognize that's the one side of it. So what we have is this God who gives life, and on the other side of it, you have this man who's going to have to work. Again, that's the responsibility of a fallen man. Now, you're going to have to work, but your work is going to give you the fruit of the ground. Now, then he tells us the woman, again, the woman, you're going to have a painful childbirth. And again, for the state of sort of getting us into context, both of those things, again, speak about the first and the second coming of the Lord. Do you find it interesting that our Savior dies on a cross with a crown of thorns upon his head? Why does he do that? Because it is the thorns, it is the curse that dies at the cross that Jesus himself wears. 
Now I find it interesting, it's Gideon himself, when not receiving help from Sukkot, when he wants to go and fight against the Midianites and other groups as well that are going to be in battle, he says, look, if you're not going to help me, I'm going to take thorns and rake them across your back. I'm going to rake them across your back and tear the skin off your, off your back. And I find it interesting that if I were to take Gideon's doctrine for a second, as weird as that might sound, what we're going to come up with is, is that a person who knows what is right but doesn't choose to do it, that the consequence would be to have the skin ripped off your back. And I think of all of the things that Jesus suffered at the cross. And now, none of those were arbitrary or, for that matter, even gratuitous. And I think the reason for him to get such a punishment upon his own back was for me and all the times I never stepped in when I knew I should have. And I find it right there in the text. I think how it says, a rod for the back of a fool... And how he was struck with rods, because I myself have been such a fool. And I think of all these horrible treatments that Christ received, and I think, well, that's probably for Hitler. I mean, it is the sins of the whole world. And I think of these horrible, wicked men, and how it must be for them. And yet, to be honest, when I start to look at what the consequences were for the things that really relate to me, one of them was for me. Just spit upon the face of a mocker. Have you ever mocked? I mean, let's think junior high here for a moment. You're 14. You see somebody else, they're not like you. You ever point and laugh? Well, then that spits for you. Ripping the hair out of your beard? That's just dishonor for a time when you foolishly honored yourself. You've taken credit for something you shouldn't have. Am I the only one in the room who's ever done that? And I realize every bit of Christ's mistreatment belongs to me, not just to some horribly, other horribly wicked person out there, that's obviously so, but for me. So now listen, a painful childbirth, isn't that what it tells us in regards to Christ's second return? That his second coming is like a woman in travail? Don't you see how all of those things that resulted in the curse in chapter 3 get wrapped up in chapter 4, and then ultimately in the first and second coming of our Lord? Okay, so now we're in a state where this couple is no longer under that, but when he speaks to the serpent... Well, those things seem so obvious, but when it speaks to the serpent, people take this in the craziest of directions. It tells us that I'll put enmity between your seed and her seed. Now I start to think, hmm, both are going to have some form of parentage. Both, in essence, are going to be patriarchs. Strange, since a woman here is the one who would be the patriarch. It's a bit ironic. But there is going to be, from the woman's lineage, from the woman's body, from, or from the woman's parentage, there is going to be one who will stand in total authority. And from the serpent's parentage, there's going to be someone else who's going to be crushed. And there'll be enmity between these two from this point on. Now, look at One of two things is going to happen. Either the Bible from that point on is going to develop what it means to have a family of serpents, from which we'll always be battling with a family of human beings. Or there will be a battle of someone in regards to the parentage of that serpent and those that are in the battle that are against them in battle of human beings. Now understand, to be a father or to be a parent, especially in our society, means a radically different thing than it would anywhere else where parents are supposed to be parents. I mean, if you'll pardon me for saying... Then in this culture, the idea of being a parent just simply means you offered body parts and DNA to basically progenate a human being. And that's it. I mean, when we give tests, the idea is who's the real parent? Well, who donated their particular body part for the purpose of making that baby? But that's it. 
Well, that would be, if that's all we have, then you have these crazy doctrines about how the serpent did something really crazy with Eve and was born forth Cain. And that's one of the things people go with with this, which, by the way, to me, just sounds so bizarre. And it's a common teaching. Not my teaching. And I don't believe the Bible's teaching, but nonetheless. But if that's the only idea we have of parentage, well, then that's where you're going to go with it. But I know what it's like to be a parent of someone that I've personally offered parts of my DNA for, but I also know what it's like to be a parent of someone who I've not personally offered my DNA for. And the difference is the difference between someone that you would call biological and someone you would call adopted. But the moment we say yes to Jesus Christ, we read, well, look at it with me, because it's important because it gets right into our text. Go to 1 John chapter 3 with me. Now, if you're new to the Bible, again, the last book of the Bible is the book of Revelation. If you go left from there, you get these tiny little books, Jude and then three John books. So go to 1 John chapter 3. In verse 1, it says this. Behold, what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us that we would be called children of of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, but it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we do know this, that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in himself is as pure, just as He is pure. And man, I'd love to develop this, but for the sake of clarity, move on. First of all, in our first three verses, the idea of it is, is that John breaks forth into this song. I mean, here's this 90-something-year-old fisherman, rough and tumble, hands calloused on the Isle of Patmos. He's been, and, I mean, this is a 90-something-year-old guy in a work camp. In a con- basically, he's in some form of, you know, some form of penal colony on an island specifically for that. And he starts going, oh, how great! Not, wow, that's kind of a cool thought. You might want to think about this. But John is in this place where he's overwhelmed. He is now caught in the tide of thankfulness. And he goes, oh, how great the love the Father has lavished, flooded, waterlogged, overwhelmed me with, overwhelmed you with, that we would be called his children. As far as the Father is concerned, what could be greater love than adopting you? And John looks and says, man, what immeasurable, magnificent, wondrous love that we would be called his children. Now, let me ask you, the moment you said yes to Jesus, did you in your DNA change and become like God? You say, well, we're new creations. I'll agree with you. But the issue is, is that an issue of God's parentage? And, and might I just say it this way? On one side is the DNA contribution. On the other side is the responsibility for care, guidance, and influence. Now, with both of my children, I may not have given the same DNA, but I have the same responsibility for care, guidance, and influence. And you'd say, well, boy, I think you're trying to draw something out. Well, follow it with me. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Now, whoever abides in him does not sin. And again, the idea is a lifestyle. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor knows him. 
Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is as righteous as he is righteous. Now he who sins, notice it says, is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might take away or destroy, literally, or loosen the works of the devil. Whoever is born of God does not sin. Again, is a lifestyle. And his seed remains in him, so he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. Look at verse 10. In this we know the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Look at verse 12. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one. Now let me ask you, was Cain of the wicked one in DNA? Or in regards to the aspect of care, guidance, and influence? I mean, it seems pretty evident to me that what the whole point John is making here is there's only going to be two groups of people. On the world, they're going to be those under the parentage of the living God who have submitted themselves to his care, his guidance, and his influence, or those of the enemy who are under his care, guidance, and influence. Clearly, according to this, what he's saying is Cain was somebody who had chosen to put himself under the care, guidance, and influence of the enemy. But that's exactly what God told us in chapter 3. As that there are going to be those who are going to be under his parentage, and there are those who are going to be under Christ, or the living God's parentage. And that's going to be the difference between who are going to call themselves the sons of God, who are simply going to call themselves not the sons of the devil, who wants to call yourself that unless you're in Camden, they're going to call themselves simply the sons of men. Now look at it, go to John chapter 8 for a moment, and then we'll get into our text. Now, if you're kind of new to this and you're looking and going, man, this is some pretty crazy stuff. Well, let's just make it as simple as possible. What God tells us is you're going to be under someone's influence. You're either going to be under his influence or the influence of the one who sways the manner and, and, and rhythm of this world. And it's just that simple. In chapter 8, Jesus is catching quite a bit of heat from the religious leaders. And the reason is because they think, who do you think you are to give testimony of yourself? Jesus will give a five-fold testimony. And it's in this part that he'll say, for instance, you search the scriptures thinking by in them you possess eternal life. But those are the ones who testify of me. Jesus says, I call to the stand the word of God. I call to the stand the Father. He testified of me. I call to the stand Moses. He testified of me. I call to the stand my works. They testify of me. And you realize what Jesus Jesus is doing is, for the jury that is in our heart, he's standing before us and saying, there should be no doubt in your mind that what I'm doing is valid. And yet, in this particular text, Jesus is also dancing them around because they're trying to trap Jesus, and Jesus instead is cornering them, and they don't even know it. It's a classic move, and what happens in this, he's sort of a shifting shadow move, and the idea of it is, as they're coming in, they're saying, well, look at we weren't born in fornication. Now, obviously, that's an accuse. That they're calling Jesus a bastard is what they're calling him. Well, understand, wasn't it Mary who said, look, God made me pregnant? Now, who believes that? Certainly no religious leader of faith. Well, wait a minute, think about that for a second. That's what had been prophesied in Isaiah. Now, with all of that in mind, they'll say, well, look, we have no God but God. We have no Father but God. And he goes, if God were your Father, you wouldn't want to kill me. You know, we weren't born in fornications. Their response, and Jesus says, in the midst of this, well, you only have one Father. You do the works of your Father. And that becomes a little bit tight. Because as he starts to speak of this, and notice in this, look in verse 19. Where is your father, Jesus? You know, the, you know, your father, Jesus answered. You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father as well. Now these words Jesus spoke in the treasury. Now with this, they will, in Jesus, as he starts to speak in this, the whole point of it is they're trying to nail him on this point. 
They didn't understand. He spoke to them about the Father. He will ultimately say, I am He. It is in this text that Jesus will say, you're of your father, the devil. Now let me ask you, do you think that they were basically a bunch of like little serpents on the ground going, you're of your father, the devil. Look, at you're a serpent like the rest of them. Or is it that they're under the care, influence, and parentage of the enemy? Now, either they're going to be scaly lipped, you know, like sort of reptilian looking people, which is, by the way, bizarre for any of us to conceive, or in the simplest sense, they're just simply under his influence. Now, if that be the case, then this text becomes quite simple. Because what God had said was that there's going to be two groups of people from this point on. From this point on, a line is driven. And that line is driven between those that are going to choose to call on the name of the Lord and those that are just going to be choose to be influenced by the enemy. And if we will, what we look at in these first 16 verses is when Adam is no longer able. That's what we see here. Verse 1, chapter 4 of Genesis. You know, Adam knew his wife and she bore forth a son named Cain. Could you say Cain? Cain. It means containment, acquisition, possession. It's the word, by the way, you'll find that, that there will be somebody with that name in both lineages. There'll be somebody with that lineage, or in the simple sense, mortality. Um, it, there is obviously the first son here of Adam and Eve, but you'll see as well that they'll be in the lineage of Adam and Seth as well. It's a, the, another child that will come. And it tells us, and she says, I've acquired a man from the Lord. I mean, she names him. That's interesting that the woman's naming him here. And she does. And, and remember, up to this point, Adam has been naming everything. And she says, look it, I've, I've, I've got mortality. I've, I mean, I've got a man, a little man, but he's a man. It's weird. I mean, now imagine what it would be like to be the woman that gave birth to the first child. I mean, unless God programmed that information in you, it would freak you out, wouldn't it? I mean, think about it. You've never seen a little man running around. I mean, you've never seen anything like this. All you've seen is one man, and he's the only man on earth at the point. And, and up to this point, we have no record of any other children. All of a sudden, all comes this baby, you're like, ah, I've got a man. Now, that would be freaky. Think about it. I've acquired a man. Let's call him mortality. Let's call him containment. He contains. He's, he's like us, kind of. Smaller. Louder, maybe. But how sad. No, notice it says in verse 2, Then she bore again. And I mean, after we think about this, after the second baby comes out, is there a part of you that thinks, How many of these things am I going to have? But notice it doesn't say she conceived again. Did you see that? It says she conceived, and then she bore, and then she bore again. Now, you don't have to be brilliant to kind of come to a conclusion. If somebody conceives and then bears and then bears again, what would you call those kids? I'd call them twins. I find that interesting. I happen to be a twin, by the way. I have a twin sister, so don't ask me if we're identical, because it's a girl. Yeah, you kind of get it. Pray for her if that be the case. Uh, Or both of us. Just the idea was quite simple. If that be the case, there's no opportunity for her to conceive with someone else. And I think God purposely did it this way for a reason. So you couldn't make up that really crazy idea that the serpent was involved in progenating something through DNA. And the idea is simple. She got pregnant with Adam. It's a good thing we're adults here. And with that came two babies. Now, what part of that's hard to understand? The sad part is what she names the second one. I mean, she names the first one, and she's like, Whoa! Acquired a man, containment, mortality, something, I mean, encased in, in, in this, this us. 
And then she comes out with the second baby, and she's like, let's name him Chabel. Chabel means nothing. Like, literally, the word means nothing. Or disappointment. Or emptiness. How'd you like to have that name? I mean, in other words, you know, you got this as like, here's my boy's containment. This is everything my man's my boy. And this is nothing. How sad is that? By the way, let me ask you. Do you find anywhere in here that, that he ever speaks? We have no word spoken by him in all of text. His blood speaks. We have no recorded message he ever speaks. Not even a single word, but it says that Cain talks with him in the field. I find that interesting. Now, whether Chabel actually spoke or not, but the bottom line is, maybe if I was called nothing, I wouldn't have a lot to say either. Actually, to be honest, well, we won't go there. But with that in mind, it tells us from the beginning of this that there's two kids, twins, that they kind of come out. One, again, is sort of, this is my boy, this is the containment, this is mortality. And then there's the second one, and the second one is nothing. And it tells us, and we've only gotten to verse 2, now you see why we're getting to 16, and that's it. And it tells us then that Chabel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now, remember how the Lord put Adam in the garden to chvad and shamar, to tend it and to keep it. Don't you find it interesting? We kind of have a hint at both of those things here. Now, what we have then is we have a shepherd, and we have a farmer. But what's interesting in us again is, is that, remember, a shepherd's job is to lead, guide, guard, and feed. That's what he's doing. On the other side of it, you have a farmer who, by the way, according to the curse we saw in the last chapter, is going to have to work. It's going to get thorns. He's going to work some more, and he's going to get something out of it. Are you with me on this? Now, with that in mind, it tells us in verse 2, verse 3, I'm sorry, in the process of time, that it came to pass that Cain brought an offering. Uh, the fruit of the ground to the Lord. And notice the term, the Lord. Verse 1, the Lord. Verse 3, the Lord. Verse 4, the Lord. Verse 5, I'm sorry, verse 6, the Lord. Verse 9, the Lord. Verse 13, the Lord. Verse 15, the Lord, the Lord. Verse 16, the Lord. That's the only term we have here. Because the issue now is his lordship. And it tells us that Achabel, verse 4, also brought the first fruit of the flock and of their fat. So there's two offerings here. Now, it's interesting. This is the first generation after Adam and Eve. And after the first generation of Adam and Eve, we already have an issue of bringing a sacrifice. And I find that interesting. Not just somebody sort of approaching God without one. We have nobody approaching God without sacrifice. And we haven't gotten but one generation from Adam and Eve. Do you find that interesting? The first act of approaching God, the first act of approaching God since they've been removed from this garden involves sacrifice. What I find interesting is notice what it says here, because it's profound, of course, as the Lord would put it. It says that in verse 5, but he did not respect Cain nor his offering, but he respected Chabel and his offering. Did you see how the two were coupled? Now, I find that interesting. From the very beginning, this is the first time somebody is a trying to, somebody, somebody is a trying. Can you tell I've been in Rome? Uh, it's the first time that someone is trying to approach God since the fall, and they are approaching Him with sacrifice. And the issue isn't that God respected the man, but not the sacrifice. The two were coupled. It took the first time someone tries to approach God. The issue is not just the man, it's his sacrifice. Because it's the sacrifice God will always judge. And it will be the reflection of the man. And any of the sacrifices we will see later, 
You have to go before what's called the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. And those that work with him, the chief priest, and these individuals, you come with your sacrifice, and it's your sacrifice that's judged, not you. They don't look and say, have you kept yourself perfect? Have you done all of the rites? Have you shaved your head? Have you taken as many baths as expected? Have you anointed yourself like you're supposed to? Have you done all the rites and rituals? Those questions, isn't like you have to fill out a 23-page questionnaire. The issue is, let's look at your sacrifice. Let's look at your sacrifice. Now, if your sacrifice is blemished at all, it's unacceptable. And the idea of it's simple. God says, I don't want your mangy rejects. I never want your mangy rejects. I mean, what part of things is like, I says, I love you when you give someone your mangy leftovers. I really love you, honey. So I went out into the back and I pulled out a couple flowers and I stuck them in a vase for you. Now, they weren't flowers that were grown. They were just kind of weeds. But hey, we had them left over and that's kind of what we had. And well, I, I made you this cake. Well, actually, that's not true. I bought a cake. I really liked it. I ate the parts that I liked the most. And this is what's left over. And there's sort of this thing that's sort of mangled in the middle. But hey, I love you. I mean, after a while, the girl's like, exactly, who do you love more, me or you? It's like, I don't want your mangy stuff. You're like, you know, it's like, you know what, God, I'm going to sacrifice everything to you. I'm going to give you all the clothes I've grown out of. It's like, you're not doing anything with them anyways. But they're really relatively new. God says, well, congratulations. Go ahead and give them because after all, they're just fi- they're filling up room that you are going to fill with other clothes that, are, that do fit your size. But in the end of it, God says, well, what about the part I really want, which is your heart? Because I've learned, man, if someone has your heart, there's very little limit or no limit to what exactly is, it, is that dispense. I was like, I don't want your mangy stuff. If you got an animal and the thing's just about ready to die anyways, and it's got all kinds of diseases, and you know, and all of its legs are broken, one eye's already gone, you know, and the thing's like throwing up as you're carrying it, and you're like, oh Lord, here's my best. And meanwhile, you got all these really nice sheep in the back or whatever, you know. Hey, I got you a dozen roses. Well, they're the ones dying of canker in my backyard, but take a look at them, and the bugs are still crawling on them, and the leaves are yellow, you know, and the petals are all falling. Here you go, smell it quick, because it won't last long. You're thinking, wow, yeah, I love you too. Here's a punch in the face, you know? And, and you, you realize that God doesn't want that kind of mangy stuff, but he always says, look at, I'm gonna t- I know who you are by what you give. I'm going to know who you are. Now, look at I'm not giving. We never do. We never pass the hat. So never ever assume that I'm trying to manipulate in that direction. Understand that. Because this isn't an issue given to me. It's given to him. The issue is God knows what your heart is by what you give him. If you tell God he's number one, but he gets the remains of your day. And they're like, well, God, I'm really sorry. We didn't have enough time today. Because, well, to be honest, things kind of built up first. Look, if I had a jar... And it was a glass jar, and beside it was a pile of walnuts. Beside that was a little pile of rice. And it tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And let's say those things were the walnuts, the important things, the things of him. Because there will always be an endless great pile of rice. Are you aware of that? The little things that kind of nip at your day. What I've learned is if you take all of the rice and you scoop it and you try to fill the, the jar with it first, you won't have room for the walnuts. But if you take the things that are of the Lord and you put those in the jar first of your day, the rice has its habit of just fitting itself in the nooks and crannies around it. Now, you, we tend to try to make it the other way around, don't we? We tend to say, well, look at Here's the list of the things I have to do. And then if those things get done, and of course, we convince ourselves because we think God will be pleased. Say, oh, I'm sure I'm going to get all those done so that we can spend this really great, we're going to go on a date tonight, Lord. And that three and a half minutes that I have left over before I pass out from all of this list, you know, and then it's like, oh, God, I've given you all the best I have. And God, like, it looks like a mangy thing to me. 
Because the issue is always going to be that God can tell what your heart's about by what you give him. You're the most important thing, so I have the last three minutes of my day. Or, you know, you're the most important thing, so... But here's the beauty of it. That in the end of it all, God will always be evaluating your sacrifice. And not you. It's no surprise to me why Jesus will become the sacrifice for mankind. Because he has to be spotless, without blemish, which means he can't have any fault. He can't have any break, anything wrong with him. Which disqualifies me for you and you for me. I mean, you can't say, Pastor Tony's my sacrifice, because God would say, he's pretty mangy. <laughs> I'm not perfect by any means. Neither are any of us. We're human. Isn't it beautiful that God would choose then to clothe himself in flesh and say, I'll tell you what, I'll come in to be your sacrifice because I qualify. So when I stand before the living God, he doesn't have to look at me and go, hmm, did your good outweigh your bad? Because every one of us will try to convince ourselves it works that way, don't we? God will just say, well, let's take a look at your sacrifice. Now, if your sacrifice is in Jesus, what is it? Is it you? See, if Jesus died on the cross like God promised he would, and then he did, he couldn't raise up again without being the perfect sacrifice. His resurrection was testimony that he was everything that God exactly exacted is what he required, and he rose up to prove it. So when I stand before the living God, my sacrifice is secure. And that's the beauty of it. Well, what if I don't? Well, take a look at this with me. What I have here, again, in verses 3, 4, and 5, is that there are two offerings. There's an offering of the first for, the firstborn. By the way, the first time I actually see the term used in Scripture is going to be here, when he offers the firstborn of the flock. So here's a sheep, firstborn, the lamb for God. And I'm going to offer that. And it says, and the fat, which, by the way, is and its riches, is the term in the Hebrew for what it's worth. Or I'm going to offer what Cain offered. Well, what did Cain offer? Cain offered some of the fruit of the ground. But I remind you, God had already told us what that is. Because he told us in chapter 3, the fruit of the ground is going to be, you're going to work. It's going to give you thorns, and you're going to work some more, and it's going to give you something that you can live off of. It's the result of my own works. Yeah. And I start to realize that's the big issue here. It's either I'm going to offer the sacrifice of God who gives life, or I'm going to offer my works. And it tells us for what it's worth in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, that by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. And what was the more excellent sacrifice? It says because he offered it by faith. He offered it in trust. He says, look at you give life. I'm going to hand this life back to you because you give life. And I know you can, have, you can give me life. Which, by the way, isn't that the perfect sacrifice that he would want of us? He's look at God, I, I give you my life because you're the one who gives life anyways. I hand it to you. Do with it as you wish because you are the giver of life anyways. I'm not going to give you my works. Isaiah says that our works or our own merit is but filthy rags. And if you'll pardon me for saying in the, in the Hebrew, it's actually dirty menstrual cloths. 
And the idea of it is, all of the works, of the, the merit, look at God, look at all I've done for you. Isn't this good enough? Look at how nice of a person I am. Look at how hard I've worked. It's like throwing dirty, filthy menstrual cloths before God and saying, there you go, that's the reason why you should accept me. And God says, that's the very token of your uncleanness. See, God died to be with you, and that's the whole purpose of it. Jesus died on the cross so he could be with you, not to send you to heaven. That's the product of it. God wants to be with you. He created you to be with you. And what you're saying in your own merits is, look at all the stuff I did without you. Let me in. And God says, I don't want you to do anything without me. I want to be with you. That's the point of it. How much of it am I trying to prove to God how worthy I am because of all the stuff I do without Him? And God says, I don't want you to do anything without me. And if you did it and it's good, I did it through you anyways. Why are you giving yourself credit for what I did? And Cain, what he offers to God is the fruit of his hands. Look at, what I've, look at how hard I've worked. And what's interesting is it appears as if Cain knows that that's not right because of the way that God deals with him. In verse 5 again, it says, He did not respect Cain nor his offering, which, by the way, for what it's worth, literally means he just didn't give it an awful lot of attention. What's worth the shelf? So Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. And I do find it an interesting word for being angry. And the word and the word literally means to, to burn up really strong. In other words, he was fuming. I mean, Cain was just hot with indignation. Now look it. You come before God and your focus is going to be on one of two things. Your focus is either going to be on you or your focus is going to be on God. If your focus is on you, there's no faith involved in that. And what's going to happen is, and think about it, and that's Cain's offering. Because as I start to look at this, I think Cain's unacceptable person and sacrifice is what I have here. And then Abel's, unac- Abel's acceptable person and sacrifice. Cain here gets all ticked off. Because God says, this doesn't work. Which tells me that Cain came writing his own law. And listen, if I come and my focus is on me, then the whole point of that at that point is going to be that I have a right to set what's good and right. But if my focus is on the Lord, I say, you have a right to set what's good and right. And I tell you, isn't that what we deal with today? Someone goes, how dare God tell me that what I'm doing is wrong? How dare God dictate what's our acceptable lifestyle and not? How dare God tell me that this is going to be in and this is out? How, God, how dare God tell us that that's evil? What you're doing is you're, you're building your whole world around you. And you're sounding just like Cain. Because here's God and he says, look, that's not acceptable. You know that's not acceptable. That's the work of your hands. That's not acceptable. And Cain goes, oh, come on. Look how hard I worked. I worked here. You're entitled to repay me for this. Now imagine, that's what he's saying. I mean, what does God owe Cain? And as a result of that, Cain's countenance falls. Literally, his face drops. He goes, oh. And he's fuming. You ever met someone? You know what that's like? Have you ever been there? Your head drops and you're like, mm-hmm. and inside you're kind of like an ogre, right? You're kind of, mm-hmm. and God kind of looks at goes, look at just because your head drops doesn't mean I don't see it. Parents, you know what that's like. And like, hey, look at I know where your heart is at this moment. I don't have to be brilliant to figure that out. The Lord says in verse 6, and notice again, he's the Lord. He says, why are you so angry? Cain, do you realize how angry you are at this moment? And do you realize who you're angry at? I gave you life. I created you. And you're angry? Why is your head dropped if you do well? And he says, look at Cain, you have two choices. At this moment, you have two choices. One choice is get right. Look at you know what's right, Cain. You're not doing it. 
And that's what God says here, which tells me either God's lying or God's telling the truth. I'm going with the second on that. And if that's the case, he says, okay, you know what's right. You know what I've already made clear. This is right. And you know if you do what's right, won't I accept it? Your sacrifice is unacceptable, Cain. You're trying to prove to me how good your work is. It's not acceptable. I'm looking for your faith. I'm looking for you to trust me. I want to be with you. Cain, I want to be with you. But let me tell you what your other option is. Right now, sin is, and the word is literally lurking. It's lurking right now. And it wants you. Desire, the same word, remember, we looked at with with Eve. Your desire will be for your husband. The idea is to control. Tamut. Your desire, or tishakha, I'm sorry. Your desire will be for your husband, but he's going to have to rule for you. And he says here, look, sin's desire is for you. Now, let's just say I was on a bus, and I happen to know where you live, and this is no creepy stalker moment, but I happen to just sort of be going by your house. And as I came by your house, I happened to notice there was a lunatic sitting outside your house with a knife, sort of sitting there, sitting by the door. And so I give you a call, and I say, Hey, Sister Ange, this sounds a little weird, I know, but... Why would I call you and not tell you? Why would I call you and tell you something like this unless it's true? I happen to notice there's a crazy-looking guy sitting outside your house right now with a very large butcher knife in his hand. He appears to be waiting for something, and I assume he's probably not here to cut your food at dinner. Why don't you do something about it? Now, more than likely, if I called your house and did that, and you weren't creeped out by the fact I came by your house and I was looking at it, you know, I mean, I'm in a bus, okay? I'm not trying to sound weird. You, chances are the first thing you would do is try to figure out the most coy way of checking it out to a window. Wouldn't you do that, right? You'd think, okay, which window can I kind of peek and get vantage point on so that whoever it was, if he's really there, couldn't see it. And so off I go, and, and you know, you'd be there, and you kind of peek around the corner. Ooh, that kind of looks like somebody peeking at, sitting there, and that looks like something reflecting. That could very well be a knife. Now at that point, you've got a choice to make. Get rid or right, get rid of the situation, which in this case, probably calling emergency services would be a good idea. I know it sounds probably weird, but there seems to be a lunatic outside my house right now. Would you go and take care of him? Looks like he's got a knife. He might want to wear some vests, right? I mean, that's one option. Or the other option is, oh, he's probably here trying to sell me cookies. Let's go out and interface with him. You know, hi, here I am. And then I'd be like, excuse me, I called you to tell you this. Now, which part of you thinks a guy with a knife outside is probably out there because he really wants to play a good game of checkers, you know? And think about it. And that's me with limited knowledge. But what if God were the one saying, look at right now outside your house. Is somebody waiting, and they're not interested in just dialoguing with you. They're not interested in arguing with you. They want to kill you. They want to take total domination of you. This is God talking here. And he says, Cain, you've got a choice to make. And right outside your house right now is somebody waiting to dominate you. Do you want that? Well, it's there for you if you want it. But that's your choice because you've taken the one step up to it, which according to this happens to be your work. You've worked, you've worked, you've worked, you've worked and said, God, I demand you to take this as right. This is my lifestyle. These are my choices. This is my standard for right and wrong. Accept it or not. And God says, you know how close you are right now to letting sin totally dominate you. You're one choice away. One choice away now. One choice. 
And it's waiting at your house. And listen, sin has no interest in timeshare or joint custody. Sin is into total domination. It's the only, it's the only perspective, goal, and objective for it. The five-year plan for sin is to dominate. The ten-year plan for sin is to dominate. That's all. Sin, what are you trying to do? Maybe we could flirt a little bit. It wants to dominate you. Do you want to flirt with Hitler? The guy's outside your door and you think, well, maybe if I make myself look cute enough, we could flirt a little bit before he stabs me to death. Think about it. Sin has no interest in just being a part of your life. Listen, neither does cancer. If cancer had a voice, it wouldn't be like, you know what I'd really like is just to be a really pleasant little tumor. Hanging out with the rest of the organs, pretending to be an organ for a while. Hey, how's it going, liver? Things are cool. You're processing toxins. Cool. Can I come in and hang out with you for a little bit? Cancer has no interest in being sort of... It doesn't play well with others. It takes over others. AIDS has no interest in playing well with others. It isn't like, you know what, let's, let's start to flirt with AIDS. Hey, I'm sure, because I have strong enough willpower, and I'm a strong enough person, and I'm young and invincible and stupid, I could probably put AIDS into my body right now and probably just isolate it to a little part of my side. No way! It doesn't happen that way. I mean, in our own bodies, we know better than that. As a matter of fact, AIDS is the most maniacally brilliant disease that I know. I mean, you have these things called T-cell receptors. And basically what they are is they're sort of the watchmen in your bloodstream. They're the things that sit up in essence I'm on the top of a fort and look for diseases. And when there is a disease, they go, ah, ah, and they let everything know that sort of fights it to come and go and attack it. Now, those are brilliant things God invented. Well, the whole idea of an AIDS cell is, is when it comes in, it sees what a T-cell looks like in your body, and then it mirrors it so it pretends to be a T-cell, so it looks like a T-cell. So what will happen is, when the guards are there, it will kind of come over to where the guards are and say, it's all right, my shift now. And the, the, uh, the real T-cells will take off, and what will happen is, this particular thing then pretends to be the watchman, but it isn't a watchman, it's completely the opposite. And as a result of that, most people that have AIDS, they die from things like pneumonia because the things that would attack the stuff that fights pneumonia is now no longer happening. It's maniacally brilliant, but there's a whole message in that about false teachers as well, because they do the same thing. They're supposed to be the watchman on the wall. Instead, they're letting in the things that they're supposed to be combating. And understand, AIDS has no interest in timeshare. It isn't like, you know what, I just want to have AIDS in your foot. I mean, we amputate something with gangrene, because it isn't, isn't happy to be isolated to the part it's already infected. And God says, look at all of those things are types, they, they show you what sin looks like. And he says, Cain, sin is gangrene. Sin is cancer. Sin is AIDS. How much of it do you want in you? Because his desire is to take you over. What would it look like if sin took you over? Well, Cain chose us, because it's obvious which one Cain chooses. See, Cain knew he had two choices. It was either to get right or to get rid. And that's exactly what he's going to do. <clears throat> and you'll find the same thing today. Somebody either says, you know what, I, I know I, this is what God's standard is and I'm going to get right with it. Or I'm just going to get rid of the whole thing altogether and I'm just going to say, oh, I'm going to say that's, that the whole thing is just a lie. It's just a bunch of hypocrites. I've set my own standard. It's ironic because that person will say, you know what, you're self-righteous. All self-righteousness is, think about it, is you, you're trying to be right by yourself. Well, that individual has become self-righteous because they've, de they've now defined what it means to be right in their own world. You're self-righteous. I can never be self-righteous. I'm Christ-righteous. It's my only hope, is my sacrifice. So the Lord said, why are you angry? If you do right, won't you be accepted? Sin lies at your door. 
No, look at it. As your pastor, I have no interest in sin dominating you. I've watched sin literally become AIDS. And I've watched people die from it. I've watched sin become people being beat half to death and being in the hospital trying to recover. And some of them not even ever fully recovering because of their stupidity because of what sin did. And I could sit with that individual and I could tell you until I'm blue in the face before that moment and say, you know tonight if you go out drinking, this is what's going to happen. And they'll be like, oh, shut up. Who do you think you are? I'm like, I'm a friend who doesn't want this to dominate you. Every Thursday, we go down to a place where men are recovering from every addiction that you can imagine, from pornography to crack to heroin to alcohol. And if you sit with those guys, they'll tell you sin that alcohol or drugs or these things, they have no interest in being a part of your life. It's about domination. And when you submit to it, it breeds death. That's what's very clear even from this text. So, now Cain, verse 8 talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Chabel, and he killed him. That's what happens. When sin does take dominion, it kills. And I know what that's like. I know what it's like to see people die in the wake of who I am. I hate it. I would never, I would never want to see that again. I'd rather be sent off the face of this earth than have that kind of influence on someone. And I know what it's like to not know the Lord and be hungry for people to like me. And the influence of that bred death. I mean, literally bred death. And, and I, I, would never, I would never want that again. I would never want it in the first place. Cain literally kills his brother. And then verse 9, the Lord speaks with Cain. And notice how cheeky Cain gets. Remember how the last time he was with the Lord, he was angry? Well, apparently that anger has not subsided. And there are times when someone's angry at you. I mean, they're angry at you and you're like, what did I do? Have you ever had that? And you realize what the Lord wants, maybe the word for the, the Lord has for you today is, look, at the, the, the issue is not you. They're angry at God. Your sacrifice was acceptable and it was enough to make them angry. Well, my sacrifice is Jesus. That's what my sacrifice is. Of course he's going to be acceptable. And there are some that are like, hey, I just hate you. You're like, wow, you barely know me. Part of you has a problem with me. You're like always so happy and blah, 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 blah. I'm like, and that's to hate me for? This whole God thing. You're always, you know, toting around your little Bible and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, first of all, it's a pretty big Bible. It's heavy. But that's uh, not because that doesn't make me great. It's just I know that because I have to carry it. But you realize that sometimes it's like, I know what it's like for a person to be like, you know what? I, I just... I, I just think you're, you're stupid. I don't want anything to do with you. And whatever words, and you're like, and you, you, let me ask you, just be honest. Do you have a problem with the Lord right now? Because if you don't have a problem with the Lord and you have a problem with me, I really want to get that right. But if you have a problem with the Lord, I really want you to get that right right now. Because if, if you're going to hate me as long as you're going to hate God, to be honest, I think I'm doing something right. But, but on the other hand, and you know, there are times where people like, they're just, they're cool with you. And then they just way distance themselves. And you're like, wow, what did I do? You ever have those moments? And the Lord's like, and the Lord's not telling you, you're like, Lord, what did I do wrong? And you're getting nothing from the Lord. And you're like, God, you're supposed to be telling me. Cause like, I have nothing to tell you. You aren't doing anything wrong as far as this is concerned. And we're waiting for a list of things we have to correct. And God's like, look at, I'm on a, I'm working with them right now. And they're having a hard time. They're having a hard time with you, but they're having a real hard time with me. And that's Cain here. What's wrong? Where's your brother? It's interesting because Cain's response is, am I his keeper? The word keep, by the way, do you remember that back in the last chapter when God put Adam in the garden to tend and to keep it? To guard it. That's the word, by the way, that a shepherd does when he guards his sheep. And he looks and he goes, what, is it my job to guard my brother? 
I'm like, interesting. I mean, what a thing to say to God. Now, by the way, nowhere do we read that God ever told this man that he had the farmer. For the minute, God doesn't hate farmers. The idea is just simple. He just doesn't want you to try to think he, oh, that God should owe you something because of how hard you've worked. And God says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's bread cries out, cries out from the ground. And I start to think, wow, blood cries? It's like, look at this testifies, and it's literally the idea of a blood-curling scream. In Hebrews 11.4, it says, Listen, by faith, Chabel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, though he obtained a witness that he was righteous. God testifying the gifts, and though he's dead, he still speaks. Verse 11, he says, And now you're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when the ground... And then he starts saying, Look, this is what it's going to look like for you now that sin has mastered you. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield its strength. And the idea of that is its vigor. Nah, is the word. Uh, and you'll be a fugitive. And the word for that is nula and a vagabond. And the word there is nud. You shall be on the earth. And I start to realize that this is what it means. This is what it's like to be mastered by sin. I will live a life of fruitless wandering. And you know what? Isn't that what we see around us all over the place? Wandering around aimlessly and fruitlessly. And God says, this is the result of sin being your master. And remember, the whole idea of it is, a master is your Lord. And notice that's the title he has in this whole chapter. He's like, look at, I'm not your Lord anymore. Cain, that's the problem. I'm not your Lord. Sin's your Lord now. And if sin's your Lord, you're gonna, your life's a life of futility. And it's basically a life of futility and wanderville. That's the idea. Which is interesting because I know another individual who actually had great favor of the Lord as well. Who winds up in the land of fruitless wanderville. And that's name, his name is Solomon. If you remember, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, it is the diary of a person wandering around in Wanderville, isn't it? I tried everything, man. I tried the parties. I tried the sex. I tried the lifestyle. I tried the bling bling. And in all of it, I found out this is fruitless. It's nothing. And God says, look at that's the idea. You're wandering around again. And we know that. Isn't it happened to us? When we walk away from the Lord, and even when we do Christianese things, but we're really not having that relationship with Him, we still find ourselves wandering around in fruitless Wanderville. It's a barren place. But notice Cain's response. It gives us a lot of insight into the way he is. Cain says to the Lord, My punishment, or the word, by the way, avon means iniquity, is greater than I can bear. Surely you've driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. And it'll happen to anyone that finds me will kill me. Did you notice where the influence is? Cain is all totally engulfed in himself. Which is, of course, what happens when sin masters you. It's all about you. How dare you tell me what to do? This is my world here. Stay away from my bubble. I made my own biosphere. And I don't want you anywhere near it. It's all about me. And God says, that's what happens when sin masters you. And God says, look, at now you're going to work and it's going to be fruitless because it's your master. You want a real master? I'm still right here. But you want that master? Go ahead. But it's going to be fruitless. And he goes, oh, I can't even handle this. Man, look, at I'm going to be here by myself and people are going to kill me. And I'm going to... And he's like, look, at if you could get your eyes off of you for a moment, you could get right. It's a black hole. By the way, I find it interesting that there must be an awful lot of other people out there because if there's no one else out there, who's going to find him and kill him? <clears throat> but it does tell us in the next chapter, Adam had a whole lot of sons and daughters. That's enough for me. And after you have enough kids sooner or later, you kind of realize, man, someone's, you know... Now, this is the most amazing part. The Lord, the Lord, if he were just a God of justice and not a God of mercy, he'd be like, well, too bad you killed someone else. It sounds to me like you deserve to be killed. And when you do that, you killed Abel? 
So what's the problem? Someone wants to kill you. I guess you're just going to have to learn how to defend yourself, Mr. Farmer. But he doesn't say that. He says, I'll tell you what, I'll put a mark on you. Now, what kind of mark could God put on him? And it says, do not kill or avenge sevenfold, sign God. I mean, what kind, of, what kind of mark do you put on a guy like this? So that you realize it's like someone goes, ah, oh, wait a minute. Ah, uh, never mind. I mean, what kind of mark? Apparently God knows what kind of mark he could put on someone to keep them safe. Listen, God knows what kind of mark to put on them to keep them safe. By the way, when you get to the book of Revelation, we'll find that God actually marks witnesses as well with the idea that nothing can touch them either. He knows how to mark someone to keep them safe. Now, for what it's worth, and I'm just going to get real controversial here, there was an individual who, by the way, I totally and absolutely disagree with, um, who raised up his own religion. He was from the East Coast of America, as many of these guys were, and decided he was from the lineage now of Aaron, decided he was going to start his whole thing, and said he encountered an angel called Moroni, and I don't want to pick on the whole thing, but this particular individual, and I don't want to say what his name is, but he happens to be of the Smith family, um, uh, says, and no relation to Chuck Smith, by the way, um, <coughs> said that the mark of Cain was black people. Did you know that? I mean, that was the reason until the 1950s that no person of color could actually be a priest in the Mormon church. Oops. Anyway, so... Uh, but the interesting thing is, is that if... I mean, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to realize that in the next few chapters, God's going to do a worldwide flood and wipe out everyone except the lineage of Noah, which, by the way, will wipe out the mark of Cain. So what in the world are you guys doing here if that's the case? I mean, you know, I mean, that's... The bottom line is, wouldn't it be sad? I mean, if that would be the case, that's a little bit strange because then you should have a mark that says, don't kill me or God will avenge you sevenfold. That's actually a cool mark to have. I mean, I actually think that's a not, not a bad mark to have. Interesting on the idea of it is that God in his mercy says, you know what, I'm not going to let you get killed. Now, why wouldn't God? Why didn't God just kill him himself? Because what God really wanted was for Cain to repent. And so he does with you. He's like, look at I've got, right, to be honest, I've got a mark on you that says, do not kill. You've got an expiration date, and you are not going to get killed any earlier than that. I'm not going to let it happen. Because I want to give you every chance possible. Now, unfortunately, Cain will not repent. But with that in mind, and it tells us then in verse 16, and this is where we close it, that Cain went out in the presence, from the presence of the Lord, by the way, which tells me up to this point, Cain was in the presence of the Lord. And he dwelt in the land of Nud. Which again, I remind you, means Wanderville. That's what it means on the east of Eden. Now, this is not what God wants for any of us. And it's not what God wants for you. God has no interest in you living in Wanderville. God has no interest in your life being fruitless and futile, where it seems like the harder you work, the less you get done. Have you ever been there? And it seems like you're just so busy trying to get every grain of rice in the jar, and all the walnuts are still sitting out because they're never being tended to. And they're like, well, I got it. I'm really sorry. It's like, look it. I guarantee you. you know, the most amazing thing is every one of us who have walked with the Lord long enough have the testimony of those days when we put the Lord first and everything just sort of worked out for the rest of the day and we had time to spare. And then somehow we flipped it around and went, oh, wait a minute. I need to actually put the cart first instead of the horse. And then it doesn't go anywhere. And we wonder how that works. And we're like, I'm trying. And we just keep trying harder and harder instead of going stupid. You know, actually, a day ago, I put the Lord first. Everything got worked out. And it was a longer list than I have today. I just want to challenge you as we go to prayer in this. And we prayed before and we asked the Lord to speak to us. Let me ask you, what's your sacrifice today? Have you put the Lord first? Have you given him your best? Because what testify? If the Lord were to look at what you offer him in your surrender, what does it speak of your heart? What's really there? 
Because unfortunately, sin still lying out the door for any of us. All we have to do is put us first. Isn't that what we saw last chapter? You put you first instead of the Lord. And you go, well, who's going to take care of me? If you have faith, the Lord's going to take care of you. Isn't that the idea? That's what faith is. I trust God. You're going to take care of me. So I don't have to worry about me. I'm going to focus on you. It's your job now. I'll assume there's a bug there. I, that's okay. It's all right. Because I, I, I assume there's either a bug or you've not taken your medication. So, uh, or, or you just get moved. And you're just like, mm, mm, yeah, woo. Sorry. She's like, just pray. Yeah, that's it. Pray that she comes back next week. All right. So, okay, let's get, let's get it to prayer, okay? Look at family. I mean, this is a place where we really can be real with each other, and every one of us is in the same place. I'm no different than you guys. I mean, the bottom line is sin is two choices away. Mastery of sin. First choice is I put me first. That's what Abel did. Arcane did, I'm sorry. And then the second then is I choose to just submit myself then from that point on to what it is I dictate. First is I put me first, then I make my own world, and I choose to live in it. And sin wins. And you can do that today if you want, but please don't. Or God says, look it, I'll be your sacrifice. I died on the cross for you. I rose again for you. Can I have you? Would you pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you for this text. It's so beautiful and sad at the same time. And Lord, I just pray as we go to prayer, as we go before you right now. First of all, I recognize the only reason I have a right to come before you in prayer is because... You sent Jesus to die on the cross for me so that all of my unrighteousness, all of my wickedness, all of my filth, all of my guilt could be paid for at the cross. And there at the cross, there at the cross, I'm I'm free, I'm clean. And and it's you, Jesus, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world that, that I stand beside as my defense attorney, as my payment for my sins. So that I could stand holy and pure before you, Father. Because you look and you evaluate my sacrifice. And if my sacrifice is acceptable, so am I. And I choose Jesus as my sacrifice. And I thank you, Lord. This isn't about you trying to make me, it isn't about me trying to make me perfect before you. It's about me accepting your perfect sacrifice on my behalf. What great grace is that? And so, Lord, I just want to say right now, thank you. And I want to say, oh, how great your love is that I would be called your child. Thank you, Lord, that I could have your parentage, your guidance and your care and your influence. Lord, that's what I want. Thank you for adopting me and making me a new creation. Thank you that the old man is no longer ruling and reigning. Thank you that sin no longer rules and reigns. That I'm no longer addicted to the world I came from. But I pray for every person here and myself included. Lord, I recognize that the world will constantly be challenging me to put me first. Challenging them to put them first, which is one step away from being dominated by sin. So Lord, I just pray that as much as that's tempting, as much as that is very much what the enemy did with Eve, Lord, as much as the world will constantly be challenging me to do so, I choose to put me at the back of the line. To put you first, to put others next, and then to put me last, because I just know, Lord, you'll take care of me. I have no worries with that. But forgive me for where I'm trying to cut in line because somehow I feel I should get something more. For what? Because of what I've done? Because of who I am? 
But in that, Lord, I want my life to reflect a person who has been lavished by your love. So please, Lord, today, please make me such a person that demonstrates the joy of your presence, the freedom of your presence where your spirit is. And in that now, Lord, I just pray that you would set us free to love you. And if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ here today, and you know that, that this whole thing may be new and it's like this seems so crazy and so wild and, and yet it, it all somehow strangely makes sense. The reason why this series, totally seemingly bizarre thing makes sense is because the Spirit of God has been speaking to you saying, hey, this is for real. And if that's you today, I just ask you to pray this prayer with me. And I'm just going to pray this prayer and I ask you to listen carefully. And if you agree with it at the end, I ask you just to say amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let these words be my words. Let that prayer be my prayer. So be it. And here's the prayer. God, I will admit, I'm faulty. I'm not perfect. I know that I'm guilty because of the things I've done wrong. And I recognize that I cannot stand in a test for my perfection because I have none. But I also trust by faith that you paid the price on the cross for me when you sent Jesus to die there. And all of my filth, all of my wrong, all of my shame, all of my folly, all of my guilt, it all died and was paid for there at the cross. And then that Jesus rose again, just like you promised, to prove that it was the acceptable, perfect sacrifice and to offer me new life. And as crazy and as wild as all of this may seem, Lord, I'm going to take the, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to say yes to you right now. And I'm going to say, sure, if that's what you're willing to do to get me and to cleanse me and make me right with you, well, then how can I say no to that? I say yes. I say yes, Lord. Yes to Jesus being my Lord. Yes to him being my payment. Yes to him being the one who sets me free. I say yes to all of that. And I say, well, then have me then and make me new and make me all the things you want to make me. You can make, you could be the architect for my reinvention. And Lord, you hand to me what you want my life to be and live it through me now because I surrender to you. So have me now, I pray, and adopt me even as you want to in Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.